Biographical sketch of George B. McClellan from McClellan's Own Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. Biographical Sketch of George B. McClellan by W.C. Prime, L.L.D. Life, Services, and Character of George B. McClellan George Brinton McClellan, son of George McClellan, M.D., and Elizabeth Brinton McClellan, was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, December 3, 1826. His school education was in that city. In 1841 and 1842, in the preparatory school attached to the University of Pennsylvania. He entered the military academy at West Point in 1842, graduating in 1846, when he was assigned to the Corps of Engineers as second lieutenant. In September of the same year, he went with the Army to Mexico, where he served with distinction during the war. He was breveted first lieutenant for gallantry at Contreras and Churubusco, captain for Chapultepec. At the close of the Mexican War, he commanded the Engineer Company and brought it to West Point, where he served with it, acting also as Assistant Instructor of Practical Engineering until 1851. In that year, he superintended the construction of Fort Delaware. In 1852, he accompanied Captain R. B. Marcy on the Red River Exploring Expedition. In 1853 and 1854, he was on duty in Washington Territory and Oregon as an engineer officer, exploring a proposed route for the Pacific Railroad. In the spring of 1855, the government sent a commission of army officers to Europe, instructed to obtain and report information on military service in general and the practical working of changes then recently made in military systems. The commission was specially instructed to give attention to the organization of armies, transports for men and horses, embarking and disembarking them, hospitals and ambulances, clothing and camp equipage, arms and ammunition, fortifications and seacoast defenses, engineering operations of a siege in all its branches, siege trains, bridge trains, boats, wagons, in short, to study and report on the whole art of war in Europe. As the Crimean War was then in progress, and the British and French forces were besieging Sebastopol, this was an important point for the objects of the commission, which consisted of three officers, Major R. Delafield, Major A. Mordecai, and Captain G. B. McClellan. They proceeded to Europe in the spring of 1855, amply accredited to American representatives and the several governments on whose courtesy they would have to depend for opportunities of study and observation. The British government extended to them every possible courtesy. From the French and the Russian, they could obtain no facilities. They were received in the Crimea with soldierly kindness by General Simpson, who had succeeded Lord Raglan in command of the British forces. Here they had ample opportunity for the study of military operations on a grand scale. Leaving the Crimea in November, they pursued their duties in various European states. The list of military posts and fortresses which they examined is very long, abounding in names illustrious in the history of wars. McClellan's report on the arms, equipments, and organization of the three arms was, says the distinguished soldier, a model of conciseness and accurate information, 
and added to his already brilliant reputation. It may be noted as an interesting fact that the Secretary of War, who issued the elaborate instructions to this commission and selected its members for their special ability and fitness, was Jefferson Davis. Five years later, when he was at the head of a political and military rebellion, one of the commissioners utilized his experience and information in organizing and leading the armies of the Union for its suppression. In January 1857, McClellan, then captain in the 1st Cavalry, resigned his commission and accepted employment, first as chief engineer, afterward as vice president, of the Illinois Central Railroad Company. Later, he became president of the Eastern Division of the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad Company. On the 22nd of May, 1860, he married Ellen Mary Marcy, daughter of Captain, afterward General, Randolph B. Marcy, and established his residence at Cincinnati, Ohio, where he was occupied in his business when the Civil War began, and he offered his services to his country. No volunteer in the Army made greater personal sacrifices. He was in the enjoyment of a large income. His prospects in life were brilliant. Like all soldiers of the old Army, he had led a wandering life with no one place to call a home. He had now, for the first time, made for himself a place of rest with his young wife, in which they were gathering those personal belongings which go so far to make life happy and rest delightful. The sacrifices of the soldier's wife are as great, often greater, than those of the husband. McClellan's wife was a soldier's daughter. The spirit of obedience to the call of duty ruled them both alike. No words can fitly express the perfectness of that love which was the light of both their lives. It was expressed in a few lines of his letters which I have suffered to appear in this volume, in a thousand passages and words which are omitted. His life from April 1861 to November 1862 forms the subject of this narrative, which I have entitled McClellan's Own Story. He was commissioned Major General of Volunteers in Ohio on the 23rd of April, 1861. On the 14th of May, he was made Major General in the United States Army and placed in command of the Department of the Ohio. On the 26th of May, he issued a proclamation to the Union men of Western Virginia and an address to his soldiers whom he led to what has been known as the Western Virginia Campaign. On the 22nd of July, having freed Western Virginia from secessionists and preserved its people to the Union, he was summoned to Washington and, arriving there on the 26th, was assigned to command the Division of the Potomac. He found Washington in a perilous condition. The defeat at Bull Run had demoralized the administration and the army. No one had formed any, the most vague, idea of what was to be done or how to do anything. Up to this time, the administration had shared with the people of the North, and an unconsidering press, the opinion that the rebellion was but a mob, to be scattered in one or two free fights by impetuous onsets of patriotic men. Now the shout on to Richmond had been suddenly and appallingly hushed. Paralysis had followed. Not even Scott or McDowell or any military adviser of the administration and people had thought of making ordinary military provision for the defense of Washington against an enemy whose shell might at any moment shatter the dome of the Capitol. The military condition of the whole country, Western Virginia alone excepted, was chaotic. Probably there were other men in America as well fitted by natural ability and education for the great work at hand, but they did not appear. 
no other one has been indicated as the proper man for the occasion that occasion demanded a calm foresight of the vast needs of the country in the coming and then present peril the ability to provide for every one of them and the expression is homely but precise the staying power to made the provision perfectly calmly completely unmoved by the cries however honest and anxious of an alarmed people equally unmoved by the criticisms of the envious and the clamors of the unprincipled if the wisdom which sought the ablest military advice in that moment of alarm had been displayed throughout the war by entrusting to military knowledge and ability the conduct of campaigns and the direction and execution of the work of war the expense of treasure and blood would have been vastly less and the end would have been much more speedy instead of this after mcclellan had assured the safety of the capital and the alarm of the civilians had subsided they assumed the direction interfered with and delayed military preparations and undertook the specific management of campaigns and armies while they took care that the delays and defeats which they caused should be charged on soldiers in the field we who were then living can with the utmost difficulty carry our minds back to the conditions under which mcclellan was called to save the capital and country it is impossible for the present generation to realize the blindness of the people or appreciate the prevision of the young general we now look back to all that which he foresaw foretold and provided for so intense had been popular feeling that it was regarded as treason to think or say that secession was in great strength that the south would not be easily conquered he was alone in the clear atmosphere above the scene of physical and political warfare and saw what others could not or would not see mr lincoln probably came nearer to accepting his views than anyone else from this time on the president reposed confidence in him and there is small reason for doubt that but for the interference of politicians lincoln and mcclellan would have brought the war to an end in the summer of eighteen sixty two but mr lincoln soon had two wars on his hands he was at the head of the union and at the head of a political party both were threatened with division he desired to save both probably believing that the unity of his party was essential to the saving of the country in this view can be explained much which is otherwise inexplicable in his dealings with the general to whom up to the very last he gave the most frank and full private assurances of his confidence the staying powers of mcclellan were the salvation of the union alone in his outlook he was alone in the execution of his great work the fortification of washington accomplished and a sufficient force organized and disciplined for its defense he directed his labors to the next great need an army the people the sovereigns had not the remotest conception of the meaning of the word army very few soldiers in this country had grasped the idea no one but mcclellan had observed that the able and educated soldiers of the south had long been organizing that vast machine which once created moves with irresistible force over all obstacles until met by another machine of like construction and greater power or which is handled with greater skill the army of the potomac grew like a vast engine constructed by a master mind its history is the reward of the constructor ample and the only reward he ever received there was one characteristic of mcclellan's mind which some would regard as a defect and which certainly placed him at a disadvantage in his relations with the men in washington he was slow to suspect evil of any man 
This trait was exhibited in his private life, and he never wholly lost it. The philosophic reader will find interest in the indications afforded in his letters of his gradual awakening to the controlling presence in Washington of a class of men known as politicians. Soldiers, accustomed to honest service for definite purposes, imbued with high principles of honor, can with difficulty recognize the existence of men in public life who are willing to manage public interests for private or party gain. He knew the past history of his country by heart. He remembered the illustrious names and records of men whose high ambition had been to serve the people as statesmen, whom no one had ever thought to charge with personal or party motive in any of their acts as trustees and representatives of the people. Was the day of such American senators and representatives gone by? Was legislation henceforth to be for the perpetuation of hold on office, for the success of party, with a mere pretense of good to country? Now that the general trust of governmental powers had become a specific trust of blood to be poured out and treasured be expended for the salvation of the Union, it did not occur to him that any of the trustees could dream of using that treasure and blood for personal advantage. When men professed honest patriotism, he believed them. Nor do the people themselves, in times of excitement, yield readily to the belief that among their leaders are some who are not honest and patriotic. But, in calm retrospect, they are generally more wise. It would not be difficult already to make a catalogue of names of men who were prominent in Washington and elsewhere during the war, who secured for the time the reputation of patriotic leaders of opinion and directors of events, whose memories have been allowed, as they deserved, to rot. All our history demonstrates how such men abound, and secure influence and power at every seat of government, municipal and general wherever patronage is to be distributed and money to be expended. They are very ignorant indeed who imagine that in the greatest opportunity for such men ever afforded in America, there were none of them at the front. They were legion. The history of the war is inextricably involved with the history of party politics. No one can understand the former without knowledge of the latter. Nor can the great services of McClellan be in any way estimated, his marvelous steadfastness in duty his Herculean work in Washington, and his brilliant career at the head of the Army of the Potomac, without giving full value to the fact that, from a short time after his arrival in Washington, politicians formed an enemy in his rear, often more formidable to him and his army than the enemy in their front, toward whom alone the eyes of the people were then directed. The Republican Party which re-elected Mr. Lincoln in 1864 was not the same party, either in principles or in voters, which had elected him in 1860. The Democratic Party of later years is not in any aspect the party of Mr. Buchanan's time. Old issues were dead, annihilated by the fire on Fort Sumter. The Republican Party machinery existed. The machine politics held it in hand, and ardent partisans throughout the country kept up a semblance of party distinction by denouncing all opponents as sympathizers with secession and traitors. But in the early summer of 1861, there was but one party in the North the party of the Union and Constitution. Here and there was a Southern sympathizer whose utterances furnished material for newspapers and orators to grow wild about, but the number of these was insignificant. The entire body of the Northern people were united in one sentiment, and this enthusiastic unanimity was the more wonderful because there had been a very widespread sympathy in the North with the doctrine of secession, 
on which the leaders of the South had based much expectation. This sympathy was not in one political party alone. Startling as the statement may be to some, the fact is easily demonstrated that there had been as many, if not more, secessionists among Northern Republicans than Democrats. There is no more trustworthy indication of a man's political opinions than the doctrines taught by the newspaper he takes regularly and reads religiously. One powerful northern journal taught that the right of secession was as clear as the rights asserted in the Declaration of Independence, that a union pinned together by bayonets was not worth having, that the erring sisters ought to be let go. This journal claimed and had 200,000 subscribers, which implies at least a half million regular readers, a large part of whom accepted the doctrine of secession. There was a body of men in the North, of considerable numbers, known as the abolitionists, who had steadily advocated disunion, their motto being, the Constitution of the United States is a league with death and a covenant with hell. Many of them were voters with the Republican Party. It is therefore unquestionable that a considerable portion of the Republican Party had been indoctrinated into a belief not only of the right, but of the desirableness of the secession of the southern states that a considerable portion of the Democrats had held the same view, no one doubts. But the challenge to arms was accepted by Republicans and Democrats with one voice and act. All sympathy with secession vanished, and it would be absurd now to deny that there was as many Democrats as Republicans among the volunteer soldiery of the war. The people and the army thought of one subject only, the suppression of the rebellion, while politicians, Democrats as well as Republicans, looked to the spoils of present power and the means of confirming that power in future elections. Congress, at the moment of McClellan's arrival in Washington, as if to instruct him in his duty, expressed the unanimous sentiment of the North in a resolution which declared that the present deplorable civil war has been forced upon the country by the disunionists of the southern states, now in revolt against the constitutional government, and in arms around the Capitol, that in this national emergency Congress, banishing all feeling of mere passion or resentment, will recollect only its duty to the country, that this war is not waged on our part in any spirit of oppression, nor for any purpose of conquest or subjugation, nor purpose of overthrowing or interfering with the rights or established institutions of those states, but to defend and maintain the supremacy of the Constitution and to preserve the Union with all the dignity, equality, and rights of the several states unimpaired, and as soon as these objects are accomplished, this war ought to cease. McClellan accepted this instruction. It expressed his own views and those of every lover of his country in the North. But if this purpose were achieved in this way, the southern states, kept in the Union by a strong hand, would reappear in future elections as a solid South against the machine politicians who had gained power in 1860. If the white vote could be suppressed and the slaves be freed with this immediate right of suffrage, their vote might be controlled and a solid South secured for those who had given them the right of voting. But how could the people be led to favor this policy? Various schemes were devised to accomplish the desired end. For a time, efforts were made to induce the North to adopt a policy which Mr. Chase formulated in an interview with Mr. Wade of the Senate and Mr. Ashley of the House, December 11, 1861. Mr. Chase said, 
a warden, page 390, that a state attempting to secede, the state government being placed in hostility to the federal government, the state organization was forfeited and it lapsed into the condition of a territory, that we could organize territorial courts, and as soon as it became necessary, a territorial government, that those states could not properly be considered as states in the Union, but must be readmitted from time to time as Congress should provide. Mr. Wade and Mr. Ashley were understood to concur in this doctrine, and as matter of fact, it was given out as sound doctrine and was widely advocated in newspapers and at war meetings engineered by politicians in various parts of the North. Mr. Chase was too good a lawyer not to recognize the absurdity of the doctrine as American law. It was pure secession doctrine at bottom and subversive of the whole system of government in all the states. The firmness of conservative Republicans and the adherence of Mr. Lincoln to the doctrine of the Congressional Resolution kept a large portion of the people from accepting it. Perhaps the greatest service which Mr. Lincoln rendered his country was in the sagacious manner in which he prevented this revolutionary doctrine from becoming the avowed policy of a party. Its success would have been more fatal to the Constitution than the acknowledgment of the Southern Confederacy. The abolition of slavery as a war measure was proposed and advocated at the same time. This was more popular. But neither Mr. Lincoln nor any military authority could perceive its practical use as a weapon of war, and although a tremendous pressure was brought to bear on the president, he steadily refused to issue a bull against a comet. The political position was therefore complicated. The process of coalition by which politicians who had been Democrats as well as Republicans came together and formed the radical wing of the Republican Party is worthy the study of everyone interested in the history of popular governments. A powerful combination was formed. It had no leader, for too many of its members were every man for himself, while each was seeking one or another personal benefit. Its common purpose was to manage the war in such a way as to secure control of the country in the elections in 1864 and afterwards. There was a body of noble, conservative, and patriotic men in the old Republican Party strong enough to interpose many obstacles in the way of the radicals. The latter adopted the customary tactics of unscrupulous partisans in this country, and visited on all who opposed them storms of foul epithets and charges of sympathy with the rebellion. Mr. Lincoln was alternately praised and vilified, but no one of the radical coalition was his friend or desired his continuation at the head of the party. Some old Democratic politicians, recognizing good prospects of its success, joined the radical party. Congress, in time, yielded to its control. A committee called the Committee on the Conduct of the War was created, to be the machine of partisan politics, in control of the most unscrupulous leaders of the combination, who used it to good effect in the deception of the confiding people of the country. It is profoundly interesting, and there is something grotesque in it also, to observe how the shrewd and far-seeing Lincoln kept the headship of both elements, conservative and radical, prevented their often threatened division into two parties, defeated each of the rival candidates for his office, and finally compelled his own renomination and their support in his re-election. To secure for their purposes the leader of the armies had been one of the first and most important objects of the radicals. If a victor, he was morally certain to become the idol of the people. What can we make out of McClellan was the question of all. 
what can i make out of mcclellan was the question of each thus in that marvelous apocalypse his private diary mr chase writes warden page five hundred that a friend said to him colonel key often expressed his regret that mcclellan had not conferred with me and acted in concert with me i replied that i thought if he had that the rebellion would be ended now i was quite willing he should repeat to mcclellan what i had said undoubtedly had mcclellan attached himself to mr chase or any other presidential candidate in the manner suggested he would have been supported by a powerful political combination but the bargains of politics were foreign to his work and nature he was creating an army and using it for the people not for himself certainly not for mr chase or any other aspirant to position the success of mcclellan in eighteen sixty two would have been doubly fatal to the politicians the old union would have been restored and the general would command the political situation therefore mcclellan must not be successful his popularity must be destroyed whatever a falsehood could be invented must be published concerning him his successes must be decried above all he must not be allowed to win a decisive victory neither a quick ending of the war nor a victorious campaign by mcclellan would inure to party success the argument of personal rivalry and party requirement was pressed on mr lincoln without success however loyal mcclellan was to his country the secretary of the treasury said he urged his removal because he was not loyal to the administration as it began to be evident that mr lincoln would not adopt the radical policy nor discharge mcclellan and appoint some general suited to radical purposes nor manage war banners with special regard to future partisan considerations it became important to gain the war department and place in it a secretary who would do what the president would not thus the course of the war could be controlled the generals could be driven with reins the president himself could be deceived misled to some extent managed mr edwin m stanton was selected and mr chase with great adroitness described by himself induced mr lincoln to appoint him as successor to mr cameron the religious emotion with which mr chase recorded the success of this scheme indicates the view he had of its vital importance to the radical cause mr stanton was a lawyer of moderate abilities a man of peculiar mental constitution without moral principle or sense of personal honor he was equally ready to change front in public politics and to betray private friendship and was therefore eminently suited to the purposes for which he was selected by the men with whom he had formed a secret alliance but he was as untrustworthy as that in other associations and at the very moment when mr chase confiding in him was intriguing to bring him into the cabinet he betrayed mr chase's confidences and defeated his plans for his own purposes those who knew him well were in the habit of describing him as one of those who always kick down the ladder by which they have climbed his ambition was unbounded and his self-reliance absolute he did not depend as do ordinary politicians on a larger or smaller body of followers and political dependents no one shared his aspirations and none were to claim gratitude or reward in his successes all times of great popular excitement and national peril bring into view remarkable characters none more remarkable than his appears in the history of the civil war none will be a more interesting subject to the student of human nature with opportunity to achieve greatness and win a people's gratitude such as few others had he used it in such a way that in the calm retrospect of a quarter of a century his countrymen look at him with sorrowful shame 
and few name him with respect, except here and there a survivor of the alliance whose purposes he served. He was supposed to be energetic, but he was only spasmodic, and in his spasms of impulsive judgment and action committed errors costly beyond all measurement in the money of the treasury and the lives of soldiers. Himself honest in money matters, a host of plunderers fattened without check on the money provided by the people and scattered in his improvident and reckless management of the department. With the men and means lavishly placed at his disposal by the people, a war secretary of sound sense, cool discretion, honest purpose, and the good judgment to accept military advice and instruction for military operations, would have conducted the war at an expense of hundreds, where it was thousands of millions. But Mr. Stanton's errors of self-reliance were aggravated by the fact that he not only had no military knowledge, but by his peculiar disposition was incapacitated to receive military instruction. A very foolish letter which he published revealed his ignorance of the simplest principles on which success in war depends. His suspension of all recruiting at the moment of opening active operations in the field was a blunder unparalleled in military history, as well as a crime. His inability to receive military instruction has singular illustration in a letter recently made public, which he wrote to a friend a few weeks after the siege of Yorktown. When McClellan entered on the Peninsular Campaign, his entire plan of campaign rested on his purpose to throw the First Corps in rear of Yorktown, turn that fortified position, and clear the way for a rapid advance to Richmond. The withdrawal of the First Corps from his army at the very instant it was to have been thus utilized defeated the plan of campaign, rendered necessary the siege of Yorktown, and the adoption of a new plan with a reduced army. Innumerable letters and dispatches, besides those given in McClellan's narrative, made these facts clear to all, excepting the War Department. Mr. Stanton wrote in this private letter to a confidential friend, The force retained from his, McClellan's, expedition was not needed and could not have been employed by him. One of his co-secretaries says that his hostility to McClellan began when he entered the cabinet. He was, indeed, but one of the organized enemy in the rear of the Army of the Potomac and their commander, but he was the executive of their plots as well as of his own. Professing always devoted personal attachment to and admiration of the general, he opened his private correspondence with his wife, circulated with vindictive malice falsehoods and slanders, petty and great, to his injury, misrepresented him to and sought to embroil him with the president, and deliberately planned and executed the defeat of the Peninsular Campaign. The accusation is most grave and terrible, but it was made to him in person by the General of the Army, and his reception of it was a confession of its awful truth. For at midnight, June 27th, 28th, when McClellan found his army in the toils into which Mr. Stanton had led them, and there abandoned them, the general, anticipating his own possible death with thousands of the men he loved, sent a dispatch to the secretary the like of which was never sent by commander in the field to superior at home. Every line was weighty, every word solemn. It was the free outpouring of a great soul conscious of the approach of death. There are no erasures in the original draft which lies before me. It concluded with this denunciation. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or to any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. 
the secretary received the accusation in silence which was the confession of its truth if it were not true mcclellan deserved and would have received quick punishment for the gross insubordination and the country would have justified any imposed penalty if mr stanton had dared dispute its truth and appeal on the facts to the honest judgment of a court-martial of the country he would of course have done so not only did he fail to resent it but he kept the dispatch secret and when some time later it was laid before the committee on the conduct of the war the concluding sentences above quoted were suppressed it appears thus mutilated in that mass of worthless because falsified and untrustworthy rubbish which forms a large part of the printed report of that committee the secretary's personal reply to the general was the affectionate letter of july third professing his devotion his practical reply was to go with mr chase to the president and urge the sending of general pope to supersede mcclellan the soldiers of the union went into the field everywhere with a mind of this sort to use them as it would if conscience ever asserted itself in that strange mind always alternating in passionate emotions of anger and fear the set faces of a half million dead soldiers must have haunted it in waking and sleeping end of biographical sketch part one